everyone. Welcome to the Women Giving a Bleep podcast. Um, we started this podcast because we want to help women who are building enterprises to change the world have a space for conversation about how to do that, how they're changing the world, the challenges they're facing, the opportunities out there for women who are doing world-changing stuff. Um, I will put a little disclaimer. Uh, we are not experts. <laughs> I'm here today with uh, my co-creator, Isabel Scheinman. Uh, my name's Taniella Evans, and I'm the executive director of NABU. Like I said, we are not experts on changing the world, but we are really proud of what we built. We built an organization seven years ago. It's called NABU. Our mission is to solve the imbalance in the creation and distribution of children's books globally so that all children can read and rise to their full potential. And we're really proud of what we've built. Um, we've managed to crack that really difficult ceiling of raising over a million dollars for our nonprofit organization. We're reaching 45,000 children and families across East and Central Africa. And we've built an awesome team that loves our mission and brand. We have a really cool culture. Um, we are on the front lines. I am working day in and day out in social impact. Um, and Isabel's going to share a little bit about her story as well and what she's doing. But we're on the front lines with you. And so we want to share with you, you know, what, how we're doing it. Um, what our journey is like, and uh, and we'll be interviewing as well other amazing women and and men who are alongside women um, in building these great enterprises. Um, so we started this podcast actually, and this is our first episode. So I just wanted to say I just found that I had so many you know other women social entrepreneurs in particular, you know, coming and kind of asking me for advice on different things, whether it was, you know, how to build their board of directors, you know, how to run a successful Kickstarter, how to, you know, raise their first million dollars, how to write grants. And, um, you know, I was finding that I was spending kind of several hours every month coaching individual women. And so this podcast is a way to do that a bit more efficiently um, and hopefully reach more women who, you know, I couldn't reach otherwise and also bring in other experts who have a lot more information on this than I do. Um, so that's why we started this podcast. Um, but I am going to chat now with Isabel and let her talk a little bit. And maybe we can just start with our why. I mean, this is our first episode. People don't really know who we are. So maybe we can, yeah, share a little bit about our journey and our why. And um, if you want to start with, you know, your why and why NABU, why literacy, why education, that would be awesome. Definitely. And I love doing this with you because every time you and I talk about our personal journeys and, and our why, I learn something new about you. Uh, <laughs> though we've spent every day working side by side 24-7 for about seven years now, there's, there's always another gem in there. So this is a fun exercise always. Um, my why, my why is started um, when I was young. So as Taniella said, just to introduce myself, uh, my name is Isabel Scheinman, um, co-creator of NABU. 
and uh, why I do this. You know, I am a first-generation American and New Yorker. My parents moved to New York as entrepreneurs to start a business, and they were invested from day one in giving my giving me and my sister um, just every educational opportunity we could have, and it was always at the forefront of their minds and always, therefore, at the forefront of our minds uh, that education was uh, our ticket to growth and opportunity in the world. And so from very early on, middle school days um, up through university, I was always working with organizations uh, specifically focused on girls' education, and that took multiple forms, um, you know, starting in a kind of more unstructured, voluntary way and moving into more formal um, programs. And one organization in particular that I spent a lot of time working with and eventually running the junior board for was an organization called Girls Learn International. And I started uh, working with them in uh, high school. And it's a brilliant organization that trains young women, young girls in all of the issues that girls globally face our same age and really trained us in how to be advocates for our counterparts internationally. Um, and we really studied the issues ranging from child marriage to sex trafficking um, to, you know, um, you know, lack of opportunity uh, financially in, in education. And so I got this incredible depth and breadth of information about what girls my age were facing um, all over the world and also an incredible training from a policy standpoint in how can we actually be the best uh, be the best advocates for um, for our counterparts and um, and so I went I took that and I went to university in Washington DC because I wanted to be close to where I thought the action might be which was uh, Capitol Hill and so I spent time while I was at Georgetown University working on Capitol Hill with my one of my New York Congresswomen Carolyn Maloney and was fascinated to learn how that world worked, um, but also really disenchanted by the whole process. And I wanted to be closer to the action and I wanted to be a part of developing solutions and not just um, pushing policy forward that I didn't necessarily wholeheartedly agree with. And um, and I also wanted to work at the root of these issues. Um, you know, I felt like I could keep building um, and working with organizations that dealt with the aftermath of girls not receiving an education and and children generally uh, and young adults not receive not having received an education um, these really um, you know systemic and terrible uh, issues that children face later in life um, or I could cut to the very core of it and work on a solution that would ensure that every child had access to an education that, as you and I, Taniella, both agree, is a fundamental human right. And so um, I began to think a bit more broadly about where and how I could do that. And um, I like to think the universe had a plan because that was just about the time that I met you. And you shared your vision for... Uh, what at the time was going to be this global digital library to provide children with uh, access to the books they needed to learn and grow and develop. And uh, if you remember, 
I met you and the next day I think wrote you uh, about a 10-page email saying, please let me work on this with you. This is what I've been building for my entire young uh, professional and young life. And that was that. And uh, from that moment on, we've been on this journey together. I definitely remember your very, very long emails. (laughs) Um, I like to call them Isabel's love letters to me. Um, It was pretty awesome getting those uh but it's funny to look back at yeah I remember one of the first things I mean we're peers but you know as your technical boss at the time was like training you to write shorter emails it didn't work I still write love letters (laughs) no I failed at that completely yeah that's amazing and so yeah so that's kind of the start of the why right it's like yeah coming into realizing that you wanted to be involved in a solution that was working directly you know on the problem that you've always cared about really yeah and I think you know the way that um that 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 why has evolved and and maybe this was always there and I I just didn't articulate it um in the right way as as when I was younger but you know the why is that we're all part of a global community and issues that affect one of us ultimately affect all of us um and so you know, oftentimes people have said to us as we were building NABU, why are you building an organization that deals with issues so far away? Why aren't you working in your own backyard? And I never saw the two as different. Um, I felt as though our backyard is this world and our global community. And so, you know, I think if we can if we can work on solutions that that really do fundamentally um, change the way that that systems work and that people and the opportunities that people have, we are we are moving forward as a global community. And so the why is, you know, I've been given so many incredible opportunities in, in my life. I have still have so much to learn and explore and discover, but I feel like there is, uh, I get such joy from building things and working on problems strategically and to be able to channel that into moving our, our world forward in some way and changing the way that, that we all operate and, and therefore um, seeing the opportunity that can come from that is like the greatest um, privilege for me and also great fun. Yeah. We're going to talk, um, I think in other episodes, I definitely want to talk uh, more about, you know, choosing your co-creators. We use that word very specifically, we don't use the word co-founders, um, co-creators, people who you want to build something with. Um, you know, I think that's something that's really important. But just as I'm listening to your story, you know, it's becoming, it's unfolding for me even more why you and I have been co-creators mm-hmm. because there's so many values that you talk about in your why that we both share. I mean, you kind of talk about, you know, growing up as, yeah, first-generation American and it's this, you know, outsider status that you have as someone who is new and fresh and new to a country. I mean, it's definitely something that growing up I had as well. So, you know, my, I grew up in a mixed race family. My mom is, um, sec- I guess, first generation British. Um, so my granddad is Jamaican and just growing up, in a in a family that looked differently I always knew that I was you know not the same as everyone for better or worse not mm. you know not better than other people but just had this feeling of of being different um 
And I think that kind of draws you sometimes to the edges and to other outsiders and, you know, maybe to look more at the margins and the marginalized in our world and to identify more with that. And so I found myself really early on also, you know, seeking out opportunities to connect with other women, other people in other countries and other cultures who, you know, I just felt so connected to, even though we weren't, you know, necessarily born in the same country. And, um, you know, I was really fortunate as well growing up to have a lot of, I have an opportunity to spend a lot of time with my grandparents in Jamaica and, you know, to go to school there and to really realize, I mean, I remember being in the classroom in Jamaica as, you know, an 11 year old and just looking around me and, you know, even then, I mean, we, I went to the public school, but it was, you know, it was a good neighborhood, but there was nothing on the walls. I mean, it was a complete concrete block, nothing on the walls, those old inkwell desks. And yet every one of us, all of the students in that room, we were just so engrossed in learning, like everyone wanted to be there so badly. And it was just this yeah, this radical moment for me where I realized like what a opportunity education is that we take for granted. You know, I grew up in the UK and so coming home and, you know, people complaining about homework and all that sort of thing. It's just, it's just it was just a complete mind blowing experience to realize, you know, to get that perspective so early on as a child. Um, and I think also, you know, your connection with women, I mean, I shared that also, just seeing how women and girls are shouldering a lot of the burden of of development um, and yet are often left out of a lot of those conversations. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, I think the why is also just this particular moment that we're in. Um you know, so I was really fortunate after kind of growing up and having those experiences early on in Jamaica, you know, got the opportunity then, um, I got a scholarship to study at a United World College in Canada. And the whole ethos of this United World College is that, you know, education is a pow- is a powerful tool to change the world that, you know, if you bring young people together from all around the world, that we can make a difference. So I went to school with 200 students from 88 different countries, everyone on full scholarship. So, you know, my roommate was from uh, was from Nepal and from um, Australia. You know, one of my best friends was a Rwandan refugee. And just having that environment, again, just reinforcing that idea of how much we all share in common. And the United World College gave me an amazing opportunity to go and volunteer for a year when I was 17 in Uganda um, as a teacher, um, volunteering and supporting a public school there. And again, just seeing how, you know, how children would walk miles to come to school and were just so eager to learn. Um, And so going back and studying like the core of these issues, like why is it that countries like Uganda are are not able to provide their citizens with education, are not able to provide those opportunities. Like, how is it that some countries have developed, you know, so quickly and not that it's a linear pathway to development, but just that, you know, why are some countries 
you know, able to provide these opportunities. And really, if you look at it, it's like, are you providing that the foundation for economic growth? And are you providing your citizens with education? Like that's the way that countries lift themselves out of poverty is if they have educated population and opportunities for growth and business to flourish. So I really wanted to focus on that education piece. You know, if we talk and you mention like the systemic issue, then that's what really mattered to me as well. Like I wanted to be at the front line of change, but also doing something that was going to have a systemic global impact. Like not just doing good for the sake of it so that I feel good, but doing something that I knew was right and aligned like intellectually with the, the challenges and the solutions. Um, and I remember, you know, one of my first jobs was after university was at the campaign for female education. So similar to you, like seeing the power of women getting educated and, um, just a phenomenal social entrepreneur and cotton, you know, we often don't recognize these amazing women, but she was, uh, she's just an incredible, uh, change maker that's built this awesome organization that's really being, led by the local community as well and and being led by you know women um in the countries where they're having impact so the former minister of education i believe for zimbabwe you know was the major architect of their program uh, on the continent so it was really cool to see that um and then my next role was as executive director of artists of peace and justice where we built a school for children in haiti after the earthquake and I remember, you know, now 3,000 children are at school there. But I remember seeing all around me, you know, the availability of of mobile phones and just thinking, like, what if we could build a platform that would make books accessible on phones that people already have in the community? I mean, even in the poorest areas of Haiti at the time, you know, smartphones were available. And so thinking about those systemic issues and how we actually you know take advantage of the moment and I think that for me that's what keeps me going you know when I think about all the things that I could be working on and the reason and the why behind NABU it's like we have an opportunity right now once in a lifetime opportunity to harness the power of technology to make knowledge available to everyone so you know why wouldn't we do that really I love you you often remind me that literacy you know early childhood education and 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 literacy for children is both the greatest challenge of our generation and also the greatest opportunity and our generation could be the ones to fundamentally end illiteracy and therefore end this cycle of poverty Um, and that is a massive challenge but also the greatest opportunity to really change the way that that we, you know, as a global community function and the opportunities that, that others have. So I, that always sits in the back of my head. It's, it's you know, and, and kind of what allows us, I think, to continue moving forward in the greatest of times and in the toughest of times is, is the, the intersection of, wow, we are working on such a complex um, and, and deeply rooted problem, but also the opportunities of where we sit today at the intersection of, uh, you know, as you were saying, mobile phone penetration growing and just the research coming out of, you know, brilliant individual organizations, think tanks, governments, 
there's so much there that we can harness and channel to solving this problem. And so it it feels like we're in this ripe moment and that's a really exciting space to get to work and build in, right? Yeah, totally. So let's go back to the beginning and talk about, you know, in 2013, 2012, 2013, when we first met and just, you know, seeing this opportunity and seeing the huge potential, but just like not having any resources, you know, it was literally, you know, you and me, how did we, you know, how do we start? I mean, I think a lot of people ask me that question as well. Like, how do you just get started if you have a great idea? And, you know, let's talk about kind of those early years and what to do if you're right at the beginning, you have an awesome idea right at the beginning of your social impact journey. Great. Um, How did we start? Well, I think we started by finding each other, right? Which was a really, uh, and I I don't say that lightly because I think we brought really different things to the table in those, especially in those early years. We've now kind of grown up in this work and organization together. But when we were first starting out, you had real hands-on experience, relationships, depth of understanding and knowledge, having just spent time uh, as the executive director of another organization in, in Haiti, I feel like you you had um, the vision and the a plan loosely for what this could look like. And I came to the table with, uh, first of all, energy having come out of straight from undergrad and, and feeling like I was so ready to dig my hands into something and had all of the... Um, you know, the, the the willingness to just throw myself and, and my full weight into working on this with you. And also the benefit of having grown up in New York, where we were starting this organization, and a community already built here. And so that was something that I could really bring to the table and leverage. And we did lean really heavily on on the relationships that you and I both had in those early years. And um, and really, I think what what kind of bolstered NABU in its early days was building a, such a strong community around us. Mm-hmm. And we ran a Kickstarter campaign to raise our seed funding, which we did quite intentionally, both because we, you know, for many reasons, and we'll dive into that at you know, a later date, but I think obviously to raise the seed capital that we needed to build the MVP to, to show the world that we knew what we were doing um, and, and to show, to, to build a product, but but also because we wanted to build that community. And so those first few days, weeks, months were all about taking this vision, sharing it with the people nearest and dearest to us, bringing them in on the journey with us. So they felt as invested in the success of the work that we were doing as we did. And, um, and that led to our successful Kickstarter campaign. Mm -hmm. So all that comes to mind in those in those first few weeks and months, um, it was keeping that community energized and and growing. Mm -hmm. I remember a lot of sleepless nights, (laughs) as we were trying to raise that money. But it was also such an exciting time. I mean, I think when you're at the very beginning of something, there is something exciting about the newness. And also coming from the UK, which is a very conservative, like culture, you know, I feel like in some ways, anyway, not as supportive of 
entrepreneurship. I mean, mm. America is the land of entrepreneurship and, you know, building things and getting behind ideas. It was amazing how, you know, even with just a great idea, you can build, you know, you can build. And I mean, we raised $100,000 in the, you know, the first few weeks of our of our Kickstarter campaign. And that was that was the seed funding that we needed. And really, you know, you talk about your network and we should definitely, you know, we should do a, a podcast maybe specifically on, you know, raising seed funding, how to build on the networks and the mm. friends and family that you already have um, and how to grow that out. And we learned a lot in that process. But, you know, just the enormous... Yeah, there's a lot of energy at the beginning, which is great, which fuels you through. Totally. I mean, we had to, you know, running that Kickstarter, we had to constantly redevelop and rethink and redesign how we were going to, you know, get through the next day of campaigning for this and our messaging. And we were building as we were doing, um, which is kind of what we've continued to do, um, though, obviously, as, you know, an organization grows, you have, you know, you plan a bit further out and and have resources to do that but in the early days it's how do we how are we going to get through to the next day um and be creative with that and and bring a double the energy because half of that energy needs to go you know into energizing other people um so it's definitely an all in energy thing and i do think you know there are part of those early days was having all of the conviction in the world that this is what you and I both wanted to be doing and and felt was the right thing for us to be doing because it's in those starting days that, you know, conversations are not always, you know, this is exactly what you should be doing. You know, people question, is this mm. really what you want to be doing? Is this what you, is this the right thing for you to be working on? Um, you know, you have to kind of convince others. And in order to convince others, you know, it takes being so having so much conviction in, in oneself, right? Yeah. I, I remember feeling like I there was no doubt in my mind that you and I should be working together, that this is what we should be working on and this is how we should be doing it. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's important to get some early wins on the board, mm. you know? And it's very easy to look back and say like, yes, we had a, you know, an MVP. I mean, we were reading, you know, the Lean Startup by, was it Eric Rhymes or something like that? Anyway, we we were doing the whole Lean Startup methodology and we were, you know, really buying into all of that and you building your minimum viable product and all of that sort of thing. But, you know, I think that like looking back, I do think that we, we, had we not got that early confirmation by, putting the idea out there into the world and trying to raise some money. And I mean, $100,000 was a huge stretch for us at the time. Um, You know, putting something out there. You're selling us short. We raised $110,000. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know every single dollar of that, Isabel. It's like hard-earned money. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like going out there big and, and, you know, now failure is kind of like something that people – are excited to experience. Mm. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think that it tells you something. The fact we had that success early on and people were reaching out to us saying, hey, if you build this reading platform, we want it. I mean, that was confirmation. And then that led to a whole bunch of other opportunities, right? That we then had after that. So maybe we can talk about, 
you know, how, so we got that to that first stage, which was just raising the seed funding. And then we started really building the organization, right? And putting some legs under it. You know, you came on as the kind of director of fundraising, or as we say, a nonprofit director of development, right. um, you know, and you started out the kind of the grant writing program. and Yeah. So I'd say that those, that was definitely, you know, we moving from Kickstarter, our focus shifted to grants, not because we had, we had a base of individual support from Kickstarter. And I really felt as though in order to, um, to, to grow exponentially, we would, we would need to, um, grow our, our funding significantly. And so we applied to, um, a, a got hundreds of, of different grant programs and, and there really aren't, uh, that many opportunities for organizations that have not yet been able to demonstrate, you know, the, the longevity of their impact or the scale of their impact. Um, you know, you often refer to it, Taniela, as kind of venture philanthropy. There isn't, there isn't that much of it out there. And so it was quite clear, um, you know, in, in speaking with others in this space and, and all of our research where we should, um, where we should be applying and, and how. And um, as you mentioned, a few big early wins um, really kept us going. So we won... Um, the Knight Foundation uh, Libraries Challenge. And that, I think, was one of the opportunities that changed the trajectory of our organization. It was the most democratic application process. Any organization, any individual could apply to this massive opportunity with the, the Knight Foundation, who are based in Miami and um, have a really strong focus on journalism and media and and democratizing um you know access to tools and services in those fields and um they gave us the opportunity to to submit our idea for how we would how we would fundamentally change uh the landscape in in the work we were doing in in their through their libraries program and so we wrote this application uh we put it on their on their site it was a um kind of crowdsourced site in the sense that others could upvote our idea and we had a swell of support behind us, and so we moved into the next round. And long story short, we wound up uh, being, I think it was one of 22 recipients of this $250,000 prize uh, from the Knight Foundation. And through that, had access to the community that uh, that the foundation provided, and it gave us a name behind us. And so um, we kind of started to, I'd say we started to build from there. Bloomberg Philanthropies then came on board um, as a as a funder of ours. And as we started to build credibility um, with names like the Knight Foundation and names like Bloomberg Philanthropies, we were able to then work with smaller family foundations and start to build from there. So our grants program became, uh, you know, it took, it took a long time to kind of get to that tipping point. And then when we got there, it felt as though, um, you know, we were able to speak to more foundations and and build that program out yeah and for me personally I mean even before Knight Foundation I remember in 2014 winning the Ekron Green Fellowship Mm -hmm. which was an individual fellowship that's another one happy to talk about that and do um, you know a series on that and and how to apply for fellowships Um, and that one is specifically because it is very much focused on early stage entrepreneurs um, and social entrepreneurs, 
uh, was just a phenomenal stamp of approval for us early on and just an amazing community, again, of, of change makers really building all kinds of different enterprises. So that's something we can talk about as well. But I want to talk about then kind of the middle period. I mean, that was the first few years, a lot of energy, some wins on the board. And then there was this like middle period where I feel like we, you know, there were mistakes that we made. The dark ages. The dark ages. <laughs> the dark times. <laughs> you know, but, you know, I mean, it's tough. Um, and a lot of, you know, majority of organizations, whether for-profit or non-profit, don't make it past that three-year mm. period. And so as we went into that kind of three to five years, it was really hard. It was hard to find funding. Funding sources dried up. Um, we found ourselves expanding too quickly. I think that was one of the biggest mistakes we probably made um, that we can talk about was just growing too quickly into different countries and regions that we really had no right being into, um, partnerships that we couldn't sustain. You know, finding the right vendors, building out the right board, all of these kind of things that can really ha handicap you. And I think um, I think probably a lot of entrepreneurs find this, and I'm excited to talk to more of them, um, you know, to see what some of those challenges were. But I guess in those difficult times, like, how did you motivate yourself, you know, when we you know, lost funding or, you know, had to cut staff or salaries or things like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I think about it, we almost didn't have time to to overthink any of it. And that was both to our benefit and to our detriment. I think part of the reason we wound up scaling too quickly in certain areas, both in growing our team, um, you know, at one point, in those years, we were a staff of 12, I think it was, which was just way too big for, for you know, our boots at that stage. Um, but personally, I there are a few things. You know, number one, I really feel like I didn't – there was no slowing down. Um, and it was every – for every grant we lost, I would apply to five more. Um, for every um, – you know, conversation that, that didn't necessarily go as planned, I would schedule 10 others so that we could just keep going. And so, um, you know, there was the question of just keep your head up and keep forward and um, always put um, the end goal at the, at the forefront. Um, and I found actually that in speaking about our work with the team and with others outside of the team, and I was in a lucky position in our team to be um, the, you know, to constantly be in external meetings with partners, with supporters, um, you know, with, with prospective, um, team members, whoever it might have been. So I often got to pull my head out of the weeds and get to share the vision. And I think that really is what kept me going because mm -hmm. vision, the vision was always, you know, top of mind. And, you know, you and I had so many difficult conversations and, and I'd like to think, um, that we kept each other going because mm -hmm. we did force each other to continue returning to, to the why and checking in on each other and making sure this was still, you know, what motivated us and that we were, you know, getting out of bed and happy to be doing this. And when there were days when I felt exhausted and like it wasn't necessarily uh, my day, you know, I leaned more heavily on you and vice versa. And that only got stronger with time. And so I think now that we're kind of out of those dark days and we can talk about where we are now, but 
I I look back on those and think that's where that's really where rubber hit the road. It wasn't in the success we had, you know, right out of the uh, right off the bat from Kickstarter. That was a wonderful time that got us going. But actually, where rubber hit the road was when things got so difficult, um, and we had to consistently and constantly um, remind ourselves that this that that we were working on something worthwhile, mm. um, and that. It would take time, but it would happen. Yeah. I think one of the most painful things for me was that my identity had become tied up Mm. in the mission. And, you know, just being real, you know, I'll talk about this. And I think a lot of founders probably experience this, but especially spending a lot of time in Haiti, in Rwanda, you know, with users that just needed Nabu so much and seeing the potential and then coming back and, you know, and failing at raising money, mm-hmm. it was really hard not to feel like a personal failure. And I think that is actually where the burnout comes. I mean, that's right. the pain of it is that you feel like it's all on your shoulders. And, you know, a turning point for me, I think, was, yeah, around about that fifth, sixth year point, I guess, 2016 or so, and just kind of just getting to the end of it and just realizing like, hey, if we cut back and we have some very difficult conversations, we cut back and just give ourselves a bit of a one way to breathe, we'll be able to come back stronger. Mm. And, um, you know, and we could talk about Amos and the amazing culture and our team and just how we have all coached each other through this. I mean, bringing on Amos, who's our director of global user engagement based in Kigali in Rwanda. I remember him saying like, you know, sometimes you have to step back in order to be able to leap forward. And that sounds so simple, but as someone who'd been running at this thing for years, you know, that was completely world-changing concept. I mean, when do you hear that ever in New York? Like, hey, maybe you should take a step back so you can grow it. Um. So the last few years have really taught us a lot and have been pretty phenomenal. Um, You know, we have learned a lot about the importance of branding. We've rebranded the organization. We've built out our board of directors. We built a really strong model and plan for sustainability and growth. Um, And now it feels like we're on it and we're in a different place. We're in a place of kind of growth and just a different phase of the organization, which also brings its own challenges and opportunities. Um, What do you think about this stage and just, you know, what do you think has been, I guess, the, the biggest learning for us as we've come out of that difficult time into this new time about how to, you know, build and grow out of that adversity? And also the mission has changed, right? I mean, it's it's stayed true to what it is, but it's had to develop and our vision's developed. Oh, there were a lot of questions in there. <laughs> um, I will share some, I don't know, just reflections on where we are, I suppose. Um, I think that what has, what what did bring us out of that period, ultimately, you're right, was taking time to slow down, to invest in strategizing and then to match the depth um, and and kind of focus on strategy with the principle that I just heard um, one of this these incredible leaders who uh, who I look up to say that the GSD principle, the get shit done principle, you know, which is which is really take time 
to, to plan and, and, and do that thoughtfully and carefully and slowly and then just go and relentlessly execute on mm-hmm. it. You know, I think that sometimes planning can get in the way of doing and sometimes doing can get in the way of planning. And so, um, you know, I, th- I think having a, a really equal balance of the two has been quite cool and helpful and it continues to move us forward um, thoughtfully. Um, building our team out in Rwanda, um, led by Amos, was certainly a turning point for me in the way that our organization has grown and will continue to grow. Um, as you were saying, uh, Amos himself, just as a as a director uh, and, uh, on this journey with us, has added so much value to our conversations and, and different perspective. Um, but also knowing that we now have this global team that we not only are not doing this alone, but actually that that they are often, you know, our, this, this team bigger than us is often the ones to bring us along on their journey and adding their vision in. And just to bring it back to what you were saying at the start, you know, I love that we did call ourselves co-creators because we left that space for others to come in and create with us. And it feels like we're at that stage Um now where where we can um you know pick our heads up invite other voices in to help us figure out how to move from where we are to where we will be in 5 years and in 10 years um but also we're at a point now where we can watch on you know through our uh through our dashboard we can see who's reading our books on our platform and that is such i mean who needs more motivation than that when you see your work in real time, uh, you know, happening and growing and and watching that happen is is like all the motivation one needs now, um, you know, just to keep doing it because we know that we're not anywhere near where we where we envision this being. Um, there's still so much to do, um, and I think that we shouldn't lose sight of that. But um, but we have you know celebrating the accomplishment of building something um, and now just taking it out there to the world and making sure that it's, you know, done in the right way um, is, is an exciting prospect, I would say. And, and knowing that there are so many more minds who will join us on this journey along the way to help us think differently um, is also really um, a great, exciting prospect for me. Yeah, totally. Well, I know that this episode was a lot about NAVU and our journey, but we're going to be doing a lot of different episodes, you know, bringing in different female social entrepreneurs, uh, talking and diving into some of the topics that we raised in this and in our journey. So we can dive into very practical how to's, how to raise seed funding, how to build your board of directors, how to think about earned revenue streams. We can talk about all that, how to do branding um, from our experience. Um, But we wanted to just start this, you know, very real with our journey and and what it's been like for us uh, over the past uh, six, seven years. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Please let us know what we can do different, what we can do better. Um, follow us on Instagram. It's at NABUORG. That's N-A-B-U-O-R-G. Um, you can also follow our teams in Rwanda and also in Haiti on Instagram as well. Um, and we have an email. It's giving at nabu.org so send us your thoughts if you have questions if you want us to do a podcast episode on something in particular let us know 
and uh, happy International Women's Day, everyone, this weekend. What a perfect time to be launching this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you, Isabel. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Women Giving a Bleep. Bye. Bye. 